Guys, we're going to start. I think uh, most people are here. And if there are one or two latecomers, we've left um, seats there, which is good. I, uh, Johnny's going to do the honours today, but I just wanted to remind you that uh, this screening is part of our Culture and Ideas programme, which we started off eight, nine years ago when SCAF started as a programme that accompanied the uh, commission project inside and initially we had Margaret Throsby who always interviewed the artist or uh, the architect or the designer. Uh, then we had Caroline Bohm who curated a, a series of talks relating always to the project on writers and then I put together a panel. So we had basically for each um, a project and the projects are about eight 10 weeks, let's say, on average, we would have maybe three, maybe six, if we doubled it, culture and ideas uh, get-togethers at one level or another. We had for children, little children, kindergarten children. Hi, Barry, come. There's seats here as well, if you want to be close. Uh, for teenagers, adolescents, for uh, students, and then for the uh, professionals, art professionals, and then the general public. Now, we seem to have, instead of, let's say, six on average for each project, we might have 16 for each project. So we have upped this thing uh, beyond all um, expectation. I mean, no one's forced us, so we've done it willingly, but when you actually look at what we do for each project now, there are so many uh, events for all uh, age groups and coming at the events in different ways. And what we decided to do um, as an ongoing project now is to have films about artists or art personalities. And so this is the first in a series. Um, I mean, Johnny is, uh, most of you here know Johnny, but for those who don't, he's a guru, a sort of um, <laughs> impresario. It's hard to find a word. Hilary and I were speaking a little earlier. You can't really describe Johnny easily. He's, um, he's, an, he's a global citizen before the word was even formulated or articulated. He speaks about five or six languages. Most of them are Asian. I know many people who speak, uh, and many of us would know people who speak several languages, four, five, six. If you go to Israel, everybody speaks four, five, six languages, it seems. But Johnny speaks a, an odd range of languages. It's the Punjabi and the Hindi and the Urdu and the Japanese and the Chinese. You know, you don't often find somebody who speaks that group of languages so many, the Asian languages. He's <clears throat> like an international commissar. He links people, he uh, promotes people, he promotes uh, events, and he has a very, very interesting backstory, which is the story that you're going to glimpse. An hour and ten minutes is not enough to tell you the story of Johnny Walker. Um, there are people here today who fit into the story in some ways, but I don't know anybody who's had a story as strange and as different as Johnny's story. The movie, uh, he'll tell you about the director, so I won't go into that. But just to let you know that after this, uh, we're going to screen uh, um, 
this has got to be a very private thing. Um, and Uli, the story of Uli Sig, which will be released on the international film circuit. And then finally, we're going to, in this particular grouping, uh, screen a film that's been seen on the commercial circuit. We've seen it. But at the Chauvel, you know, not that many people go, really a very few screens on Peggy Guggenheim. And uh, some of you would have seen it. But the thing is, where we're going to be different is have people to introduce the films that are closely connected with the um, with the film itself. Oh, and I've missed one, haven't I, Danielle? And that's Cutie and the Boxer, which is a, an award-winning film about a Japanese gutai artist, uh, which has also been screened, so, you know, we, we can't pretend to be uh, the first by any means. Um, and it's about a Gutai um, artist who uh, boxes his way into painting. He actually boxes the canvas. And it's an award-winning film uh, documentary. So this is the series as we go. Somebody talking, an art uh, artist, if we can find one, or an, a good one in terms of the documentary side and, and or an art world personality. So I'll leave things to Johnny now. And Johnny, you've got such a loud voice. Probably don't need it. Okay, do you want it? I think it's okay. Okay, if you want it, it's round here. I'll sit next to Brian Alligator. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much for coming. It's sort of like a family reunion. <laughs> oh, so I need to use this one. Is it on? Hello? Yeah. Um, the film is done in Chris Marker fashion. It's an abstract art film. So it has some substance and plot to it, but basically it's abstract. So it's good maybe to have a little bit of uh, introduction so you catch some of the innuendos throughout the film. Um, and some of the people starring in the film are related, are here today. Um, my dog, Bogey. I have a Rhodesian Ridgeback in Tokyo, thanks to Michael Whitworth, who has a, a Rhodesian Ridgeback. And I said, where did you get a nice dog such as this? And he introduced me to the breeders and the owners of Bogey's mother's... <laughs> Bogey's mother's owners are here today. <laughs> Carrie and Chris, thank you very much. And we, we make a joke because um, the Rhodesian Ridgeback's an African dog. And to be politically correct these days, you can't call an African dog Mandela or Sambo. So we called him Bogey after Humphrey Bogart because our African queen, Casablanca. But we tease our, um, our Australian friends. We say because he was born in, in a far western suburb, he's a bogan, so his name is Bogey. <laughs> And uh, he's very well known in Tokyo. And he, every year we host a big artist prize in the ballroom of the Peninsula Hotel and Bogey's on stage presenting the prize. Uh, one year he did it with Gene. And uh, so he's very well known in Tokyo and we'll be walking down the street. He goes everywhere without a leash. He's a very smart dog. And we'll, a block away will be somebody that knows him. And by chance between that person and me are a group of Australian tourists. And the person a block away will look back and see the dog and yell down the street, Hey, Bogey! And the Australians stop and give him a dirty look. <laughs> 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 
but um, also in the, tonight, uh, uh, here is Lynn and Tony. If, I, if you don't know them, you really have to uh, meet them. They're some of the best cutting-edge designers in, in uh, Australia today. Um, where's Tony? Can you, do you have your scarf? So he, they make sometimes things out of kangaroo leather. And he made this kangaroo, they've only made two kangaroo leather scarves. And one of them is in the film. It's uh, part of Kafka's uh, costume in the film. But there's lots of people that are related to what's happened and uh, know the, some of the story. Um, the artist is, uh, who made the film is a Swedish artist named Mag Magnus Bartis. He's Sweden's uh, leading authority on Chris Marker, the famous French abstract filmmaker who died a couple of years ago. And um, he teaches in the university, he teaches Chris Marker. And um, a lot of his work is influenced by Chris Marker. A lot of his concepts are based on identity and plays with identity. And he came to Tokyo like 15 years ago when Japanese were, young Japanese, it was fashionable to dye your hair red and blonde. And so as an antithesis to that, when I had more hair, I dyed my hair black and I shaved my head so there's just two lines of black forming a V at the back of my head uh, just to make a satire on young Japanese wanting to be Western. And um, I kept it that way for a couple of years. And Magnus Bartos was visiting Tokyo without my knowledge. I had no idea who he was, and I didn't know he was in Tokyo. And um, at some art opening, he was intrigued by this hair design and took a picture of the back of my head. Then he started to ask people about me and um, put together this, this work, artwork without my knowledge. And, in the summer, in June, the new Swedish ambassador and his wife arrived in Tokyo, met them at a party. They went on home leave in August, came back in September. I met them at another party, and the wife walks up to me and says, who are you? I said, why? She said, well, when we were on home leave, um, the government sponsored in the old National Archives building a group show of contemporary art, and we went for the opening and walked in, and facing us on the wall is a three-meter by two-meter picture of the back of your head. And there's a sign under it that says, uh, Johnny Walker, myth or reality? <laughs> and there's some posters on the wall about stories about you and your family. And part of the opening ceremonies was everyone had to sit down and there was a very serious debate, public debate, on whether Johnny Walker was a fictitious invention of the artist or a real person. And she said, they announced there's time for one last statement. She said, a young German guy, an artist, stood up in the back of the room and said very seriously, Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you this Mr. Johnny Walker, he really exists because I used to have a Yugoslavian girlfriend that once met him in the Hanoi airport. <laughs> so that sort of sums up my life in a nutshell. That's it. <laughs> and uh, so that was his first uh, art where he used me in, as a subject in his art. Um, the next one was, he was uh, researching, when he researches Chris Marker films, he goes into the background of the characters, the history of the people, and he came across this film called, by Chris Marker called Mysterie Kumiko. And it turns out in 1964, when they had the Olympics in Tokyo, 
the French government was advertising for filmmakers to go and document the Olympics. And he applied for a grant. And even though he doesn't do anything with sports or even normal films, he won the grant. And, went, and the first day he's filming the Olympics, because he had to show something for getting the grant, he noticed in the audience a very exotic-looking Japanese woman. He packed up early, waited outside the stadium to see if he could catch her coming out. Saw her, followed her through the streets of Tokyo, filming her with his camera on, just holding it, filming wherever she stopped at shops, talking to people. When she got to where she lived, he approached her and said, excuse me, but I'm here sponsored by the French government, filming the Olympics. I really need an assistance. Do you speak a little English? She said, yes. He says, well, I would be happy to pay you if you could be my assistant for the next 10 days in Tokyo. And I'll meet you here at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. She said, fine. And so they met. And when they met, he said, look, I have no interest in the Olympics. All I want to do for the next 10 days is follow you around Tokyo where you like to go. And she didn't know that he had the camera on all the time and was filming her. And when he went back to France, he made this film called Mysterie Kumiko. But Kumiko turns out that she was born in Harbin because it was a Japanese colony. And I was also coming from Harbin to Japan. And my passport's Japanese, so I've always been Japanese but not Japanese. And um, in those days, it's still very racist in Japan, but in those days, it was extremely so. So if you were a Japanese child whose parents were assigned overseas for a corporate job or for a diplomatic mission, and you came back and re-entered re Japanese schools, the kids would beat you up, saying that you're not pure Japanese, you were contaminated by the outside world. And so because she was often bullied in school for coming back when she was nine years old, she always felt that she was Japanese, but not Japanese. And the artist who did the film, Chris Magnus Bartes, started to put two and two together and said, wait a minute, she's from Harbin. She always felt she's Japanese, but not Japanese. She played herself in a Chris Marker film. Johnny Walker came from Harbin, is Japanese, but not Japanese, played himself in a Haruki Murakami book, Kafka on the Shore. And she, he said, wow. And so he applied to the Swedish National Film Institute for a grant to make a film called Kumiko, Johnny Walker, and the Cute. The Cute being my Irish wolfhound at the time, Bacon. Because in Japan, you have this whole cute phenomena with um, Hello Kitty and all that. And he came to, he had no idea if Kumiko was still alive or where she was, uh, but he got the grant. So he had no choice but to start the film, and hopefully he could find, eventually find Kumiko if she was still alive, because that was in 1964. And um, he came to Japan and started making the first part of the film with the dog and myself. And while he was in Tokyo, he was um, surfing the web for any connection with uh, uh, Chris Marker in, uh, in Tokyo or in Japan. And he came across this little bar in Golden Guy, which is Golden Guy's an area behind the main red light district in Kabukicho in Shinjuku, where retired male and female prostitutes open a little kitchen-sized bar when they're too old to work anymore in the sex industry. And some of the bars have become bars for writers or artists, architects, filmmakers. And there was a, a bar called Le Jeté, which is the name of a Chris Marker film. 
And he thought, well, I'll take a chance and go there. Some, it has the same name as a Chris Marker film. So he walked into this little tiny bar upstairs at Le Jeté uh, one night, and he said to the mama-san, do you know Kamiko? She said, of course I do. She's my best friend. And he says, wow, how do I contact her? She says, well, she, moved, she fell in love with Chris Marker, and even though Chris Marker didn't love her, she wanted to be near him. So she moved to Paris 40 years ago. Here's her phone number in Paris. Call her. So... That night he walks into my house like somebody who found the Holy Grail. <laughs> and he's holding the sacred phone number in his hand, going, I have Kumiko's phone number. Can you believe it? I said, give me that fucking number. I call up Kumiko in Paris and just talk to her in Japanese. No one says, who are you, who are you or why are you calling? And I said, hey, Kumiko, it's been a long time since Harbin, hasn't it? She says, it sure has. I said, do you remember the ice cream at the Hotel Modern owned by the Caspers? She said, oh, that was the best. And how about the leftovers from the bar mitzvahs at the hotel? <laughs> she could always sneak in the back door and get great, you know, they used real butter. And um, I said, what about Cafe Mars owned by the Zuckermans and the Borscht and the Russian bread? She said, oh, yeah, that's the best. And then she would say, how about Dr. Kosenbeck's yacht down on the river at the yacht club? And we went on talking for about half hour about the good old days in Harbin. And I said, well, I'm feeling a little bit tired. I'm going to say good night. And she said, yeah, me too, good night. And no one said, who are you or why you're calling? And then he went to Paris to make the second part of the film. And while he was filming her one day, she stopped and she said, was that phone call Johnny Walker? (laughs) (laughs) And this leads up to this film, the third artwork that uh, Magnus has created using me as a subject. And um, as Jean very well said in her little written introduction, um, this is sort of my story in a nutshell. And um, it um, is based apart on a problem that I had uh, 10 years ago in in West Africa, where I was going to check out uh, the Dakar Biennale. And David Elliott, one of my best friends, had just previously curated the Dakar Biennale. And I had to go to Morocco with some banking clients. And I thought I'd go for a weekend to Dakar and check out the art scene and the Biennale people and all that. And... um, with, I didn't realize, I traveled before in Africa, but I didn't realize that, especially in Senegal and a few other countries, but more in Senegal, they target foreigners, the police, and they have a whole justice system set up where the judges are in it, there's no juries, and they target foreigners and create false charges and demand large amounts of money to let you go. And um, so that's what happened to us. I was assigned... Uh, an art student as a guide by people related to the Biennale. And we sat, we met for 10 minutes, sat down for lunch. And like in a lot of African countries, uh, it's illegal to be gay. And the police see an opportunity. It's an older white guy with a younger black guy. And it's a a easy setup because they can translate that very easily into uh, a, a gay couple. So we met for 10 minutes. We were both arrested thrown in jail, tortured, beaten. Um, 
my friend, it, at the time when we met, he had a difficult African name, and it was when Murakami's book just came out, Kafka on the Shore. So I said, look, I'm just gonna call you Kafka. I said, okay, he said, yeah, sure. And um, so the police offered uh, his father $2,000 if he would testify against me in court saying that I was abusing him in public. And the father said, sure, great. And when it came to the preliminary trial and the judge said to him, tell us how this foreigner abused you in public, he said we were having lunch and that's all. And the judge said he's too young to know what he's talking about, get him out of here. So he was released. And um, his father kicked him out of the house for that. And he took refuge with um, American missionaries that were helping gay people secretly. And um, when I eventually got out, thanks to the Shermans and other people, um, the American missionaries contacted their church in Tokyo, contacted me, and um, we started to call him through the missionaries, and then I set up where he had his own mobile phone and started renting a little apartment. But because of what happened, and he didn't cooperate, his passport was denied. So we talked on the phone every day for nine years. And then finally the government changed, and he got a passport, and he came to Japan. And he got into, he had, uh, he was very successful with his photography. He had, a sh he was chosen for the uh, Kyotography, the annual photography is the number two photography event in the world after Arles in France. And he had uh, an important exhibition at, in Kyotography. Then he got more into fashion. His parents are from Guinea. Originally they went back to Guinea, got Ebola, they both died. Uh, he's the oldest son, the father had four wives, lots of kids, so he felt the responsibility to go back, and he always was very sensitive to the racism in Japan, which I'm not. It's, for me, it's like, you know, water on a uh, duck's back, you know, and, uh, but there would be little innuendos all day long against him. We'd get in, on an elevator and people would look at him up and down and hold their nose going up in the elevator. You know, and I learned to play with it and joke with it. Like a, a black man in New York, you just turn it around, make a joke, and put it back in people's face. And, you know, I think we're all friends here, so I can speak a little more edgy and radical. I mean, one day we got in an elevator in a high-rise in Shibuya, and on the next floor, an older woman, about 60 years old, got on. It was a crowded elevator, and she looked at my friend up and down with a nasty look and then held her nose going up in the elevator. And um, she got off on the floor before us and I stood in front of the door and blocked the door. And um, I said to her in Japanese, the whole elevator of course went silent and uh, I said to her in Japanese, you know, I'm really shocked. A woman your age having a period so strong you have to hold your nose. <laughs> And everyone started laughing, and she ran off, <laughs> red face. <laughs> Sorry for the uh, rudeness, <laughs> but we're all friends here. But uh, um, anyway, um, I gave Kafka decided he couldn't deal with Japan, and he felt the responsibility of being the oldest in the family. 
and he needed to go back to Senegal. So I gave him the seed money. He got more into fashion while he was in Tokyo, which one often does. And he started his own um, uh, boutique in Dakar. And that's where he is now. And we talk now and then. And he's happy. And he's with his family and friends. And he's supporting his family. So he's like the hero, the good, like the David Walsh of Dakar. <laughs> the, the hometown boy made good, you know. And um, just a few things. Sorry to talk on so much. But so you have this whole idea of what's happened and what's going. So the film is a satire on what happened to us. It's a little bit of a background on my story, and then it's a satire on what happened to us. And uh, as you have um, the traditional story of famous English explorers going to Africa to look for the lost tribes in Africa, this is a story of the famous African explorer coming to, to, to Japan to look for the lost tribe of Israel. And um, in the 1920s and 30s in Japan, you had a secret society called the Makoya, which is a Hebrew word. And um, they operated sort of like the Masons operated in Italy, because the Masons were anti-Catholic. And in, in Italy, the Masons were not anti-Catholic, but they became an elite secret brotherhood with prime ministers and nobility belonging secretly to these secret brotherhoods. So the Makoya was a secret brotherhood of the elite in Japan, including imperial household princes and uh, prime ministers. They all secretly belonged to this secret society. And one of their main precepts were the Japanese were one of the lost tribes of Israel. And they tried to make all these superficial associations between Jewishness and Japanese. Uh, for example, the uh, kana alphabet, hirakana and katakana, the two phonetic al alphabets that they use in Japan, they said it looks like Hebrew writing. Uh, sometimes in Shintoism, and uh, you find uh, stars of David's. Just like in Buddhism, you find op opposite going uh, swastikas. Uh, there's a Shinto god called Tengu with a big long nose. So said because Jews have big noses, Tengu was from the Hebrews. And they tried to draw, and the carrying around, when they have a festival, out of the Shinto shrines, they have these portable shrines they carry on their uh, shoulders through the streets of the neighborhood. And they said it was like taking the Torah out and carrying the Torah around. And they tried to draw all these similarities. And after the Second War, this secret society sort of dissolved, but evolved into becoming a Japanese version of a Protestant church. And still in Tokyo today, you have the Makoya Church that they're Protestant Christians, a Japanese version of Protestant Christians, and they still believe the Japanese are the lost tribe of Israel. And they have their own kibbutz in Israel, and they send all their kids every summer to Israel, to the kibbutz. They all speak perfect Hebrew. They have a choir, an amazing choir of old Japanese ladies who all dress in kimono and play the accordion and sing ancient Hebrew songs in perfect Hebrew. <laughs> it's like from another planet. And... Um, so um, at one point, uh, the film begins with Kafka coming to Japan. And in Yokohama, the port near Tokyo, there's a 160-year-old Jewish cemetery. It's at the back and at the bottom of the ravine of the old foreigner cemeteries that's been there for 160 to 200 years. The Jewish cemetery is about 160 years old. 
And I guess some people complain because you have to walk all the way through this huge foreigner cemetery that's been there for 200 years. And you walk down at the very back at the bottom of a ravine is the Jewish cemetery. And I guess somebody at one point complained and there's a sign in Japanese on the fence written in Japanese that says, the location of the Jewish cemetery is in no way a reflection of anti-Semitism. <laughs> so the film begins with Kafka coming to Japan in his African costume um, and going to the Jewish cemetery in Yokohama to look for clues of the lost tribe of Israel. And um, then it shows him going over volcanoes through forest with his faithful African dog, Bogey. <laughs> from Sydney, and um, they come to this clearing and the Mitsubishi family has a Frank Lloyd Wright uh, designed summer house in this elite uh, summer area called Karizawa. And they loaned us this 1930s Frank Lloyd Wright style house for the film. And it shows them coming through the clearing and sitting on the terrace of this house is me dressed in this long coat and hat made from the hair of my previous dog, Bacon, by Anne Graham, Tony Bond's wife. And surrounding me is this choir from the church, the old ladies in their kimono singing in Hebrew with the accordion very enthusiastically. He comes into this clearing like he's discovered the lost tribe of Israel. <laughs> and um, it was so good, the Swedish filmmakers, and the old ladies took him in, and we sit down together, and we're rocking to the music, and the Swedish people that were making the film got so ex expired and enthusiastic about what has happened. They said, we really, this is like a Sunday. And they said, we really need a wedding scene where you two get married. I said, well, in Japan, they don't do same-sex marriages. And they said, well, can't you do something? So I called the main Shinto shrine in Shibuya where I knew the head priest, who was rather cool. And I said, look, we have these filmmakers, we need a same-sex marriage. I know you don't do same-sex marriages. And this is like on a Sunday night. And I said, um, he said, uh, all he said was, come Wednesday at eight o'clock. And I said, why come Wednesday night at eight o'clock? He said, the other priest won't be here, we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so within three days, everybody in Tokyo jumped on the bandwagon. Costume designers came together, designed costumes for the wedding. The leading Bhutto dancer did a performance for the wedding. We had over 200 people celebrating this funny thing, you know. And that's basically, sorry to talk on so much, but thank you very much. <laughs>